Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Welcome to another edition of Fridays with a Scientist. Today we have Dr. Patricia Parker from the University of Maryland. I believe you are an assistant scientist there, correct? Yes, assistant research scientist. And you primarily work for NASA Goddard as a contractor, is that right? Yes. Yeah. So my office location is actually at NASA Goddard. Very cool place. I've been there a few times. I believe maybe once I was there when you were giving a seminar a few years back. I'm also been fortunate to see you give a seminar here in Lincoln. Thanks. Uh, So what, just a little background on you, where are you from? What got you interested in the weather and those sorts of things? Yeah. So I'm from Northern Virginia, from the DC area. And Our weather here is probably not as interesting as many other areas of the country. You know, we're not, you know, in Tornado Alley or, you know, get a lot of lake effect snowfall, but we get a little bit of everything. Um, And I have just always been fascinated by like thunderstorms. I used to like to watch them on like our deck with my dad when I was little and just got bitten by the weather bug as, you know, a child. Was there like any pivotal moment in your childhood that's like, oh, yes, I just have to study weather and like anything else isn't going to be satisfactory or just you you always kind of liked it? Yeah, I mean, we had a lesson on clouds and weather when I was in second grade, and I just remember thinking that it was really fascinating at that time. Um, but nothing like really dramatic or traumatic or anything like that, um, that happened, but I always just had an interest in it. And as I got older, you know, going into high school and things like that, I really enjoyed math and, you know, people don't often realize how much math is involved in meteorology. So it was nice that, you know, my interest and, um, you know, like of math really went hand in hand with. Um, meteorology. So that made sense to pursue going into college. So you realized before you went into college that there was a lot of math and meteorology program. Yeah, I um, actually had written a letter because that's what you did at the time. We didn't use email as much back then. Um, I wrote an email, uh, a letter to our local TV station meteorologist, and he invited me to come to the uh, station to meet me and like show me around the weather station. So I went with my parents when I was in high school and he mentioned at that time that like, you know, math was really important. I was already, you know, on a path to take a lot of math in high school anyway. Um, But that was nice to know going into it that that would be something that was necessary going through college with a meteorology degree. Yeah, that's very interesting. I find a lot of students um, were very surprised when they started a meteorology program, like, oh, we have to do all this calculus and ordinary differential equations. And, you know, it's very much a physics-based, math-based program. And that's not for everybody. Yeah, definitely. Uh, speaking of things that are not for everybody, um, the state of Nebraska's slogan, jokingly, is honestly, it's not for everyone. You do have some unique connection to the state. And I know you're not from here, but uh, some of your research involves the state and this uh, with the impacts of irrigation um i'm just kind of curious what what got you interested in studying the impacts of irrigation on like the lower boundary layer or how did you come into that 
Yeah, I feel like a secondary resident of Nebraska because of how much I study it and all of my research. Um, but really, I, I've always been interested in land atmosphere interactions or, you know, how the land impacts um, the weather. And so for my master's degree, I looked at how the urban center of St. Louis impacts thunderstorms and the weather. Um, and I was fortunate enough with that experience to be able to get an internship at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center during my master's um, degree. And so when I took that internship, they kind of had this project in mind um, that they wanted someone to test these newly implemented irrigation methods that they had in their NASA model, which is, um, you know, kind of NASA's version of the weather research and forecasting model, which is used extensively throughout um, the research and operational weather communities. Um, and so in looking at how irrigation impacts the weather, um, I was able to choose the, the study area and it made sense to just focus on Nebraska because there's so much irrigation happening there. And there are actually some observations as well. There are a couple of flux towers um, near Mead, Nebraska, and, and that's rare to have those kind, kind of observations in an area that is very irrigated. So it was just a natural choice to focus on Nebraska. Yeah, I know the Flux Towers at Mead, I think, have been reporting data from there for quite a few years. I'm not sure if they're still active, but I mean, I know there was a at least a 15-year history of data. Um, I know that probably because I used a lot of that data in my own dissertation uh, back in the day. Um, but like yeah, you said, the study area was mostly Nebraska. Now, there is a pretty sharp transition zone in this state, as you probably have seen if you drove from east to west. Um, you know, east to here, some live based here in Lincoln and east of here, there's very, very little irrigation and you get across the big blue river and there's lots and lots of irrigation. And that kind of continues on for a good portion of the state. And I've always kind of classified the irrigation in Eastern Nebraska as a bit more supplemental. This year it was essential, <laughs> um, but a lot of years it's more supplemental, but as you go further West, it becomes very, very essential. And, you know, the, you'll start seeing like places where they don't plant with the pivot corners. So you, you probably have seen satellite imagery of like West Texas or Western Kansas, or maybe parts of Southwestern Nebraska where you know, like there, you see all this dense vegetation in the, under the pivot and nothing outside of it. That doesn't tend to be the case in, in uh, Eastern Nebraska. Um, but so you like your, your study area, was it mostly West of the, it was entirely West of Missouri river or like how far like West into the state was your study area? Yeah, for that <clears throat> for that work, it was mostly eastern Nebraska. Um, I think we probably went a little bit west of York, um, so not even you know half the state. And yeah. we also had like the eastern part of the domain included parts of Iowa, and the southern part was um, you know the northern part of Kansas, but really focused on that gradient, just like you talked about. Yeah. So what were some of the most interesting findings you, you found from that study? Yeah. So in that work, one of the most interesting things, I think, was that, um, you know, we saw that irrigation lowered the temperature and made things cooler and more humid, um, which is, you know, expected. We kind of that's the result that we expected to see. Um, but we also saw some changes to the stability of the atmosphere. Um, and so 
right over the irrigated areas. We saw, you know, these metrics that we look at to um, give us information about how likely clouds are are to form. We found that um, those were telling us that right over the irrigated areas, there was less potential for cloud development. But downwind of irrigation, there was actually more potential for cloud development than without irrigation. Um, so things were changing so much over the irrigated areas that that was kind of working in the favor of less clouds. But downwind, you know, because that moisture was being blown to other areas that moistened those areas um, enough to, to create the potential for more clouds there. And we're talking about, you know, convective clouds in this case. So in other words, there's a chance that we're seeing more precipitation in the extreme eastern part of Nebraska and into western Iowa because of irrigation west of here. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah, so we didn't look at that specifically, um, but that would track with our findings based on those um, model case studies. And there are other groups that have looked at how irrigation affects precipitation specifically. We tend to stop short of that and just look at, you know, these cloud development metrics more than, you know, does that then translate to more rainfall? But other groups are very interested in precipitation and have found that, um, you know, irrigation can affect where rain falls and how heavily it falls and where it falls. Well, absolutely. And I, I understand your study was mostly just showing where you would have more cloud development, but that would certainly imply there's at least a higher probability of precipitation. You know, one thing that's interesting is we have definitely seen Longer term, we have seen an uptick in precipitation in this part of the country. Um, I mean, that's kind of broadly over the central U.S. It's not just specific to eastern Nebraska or western Iowa. Um, but it would be interesting if some of that isn't attributed, attributable to irrigation that we have west of here or southwest of here. Um, now, granted, we have been much drier the last four or five years than we were, you know, the previous five or six were pretty wet here. Um but yeah, I mean, it just, it seems interesting that, so the center pivot irrigation really started, you know, in that kind of that central eastern, east central part of Nebraska, probably about 50, 55, 60 years ago. So prior to the early 1960s, there really was not a lot of irrigation in that area. If it was, it was mostly flood irrigation. Um, in your study, did you, were you able to test the different methods of irrigation? Did that make a difference if you've, if you were able to do that? Yes. So we looked at flood drip and sprinkler irrigation. Um, and the difference as far as the model goes is basically like how um, that water is prescribed. So the flood method will um, basically just increase the soil moisture to a certain level. Um, the sprinkler scheme will add water as precipitation. Um, so it is, you know, subject to canopy interception and things like that of the crops. Um, and then the drip scheme is more trying to mimic like perfect um, irrigation. So everything is kind of handled in terms of, um, you know, making sure that the crop isn't stressed, but not, um, you know, having any excess water. Um, and so we saw in our results that the model was very sensitive to which method was used. Um, and a lot of that really came from how much water was applied because each of them, you know, applies it differently and, and ends up with different amounts. 
Um, and so that amount of water is really more important um, than exactly how it's applied. Um, but we didn't have observations really to, um, you know, compare, for example, a patch with observations of, you know, a sprinkler field versus a flood field and how the model does that. So it's more of a model sensitivity study in that sense. Um, mm -hmm. But it's still, you know, very useful to see that the model cares a lot about, you know, which method you're choosing. Yeah, no, I think that's that's really interesting. I mean, I think it's, I, I guess I would say it sounds like it's a good thing that they, that there was a difference because, I mean, in theory, flood irrigation would just probably moisten soil itself. I don't think that's, I could be mistaken, but I don't believe that's probably the most efficient method of irrigation. I think center pivot for a corner soybean crop or wheat crop, that's probably the most efficient method of putting water on. Uh, or I mean, for the cost, drip is probably the most efficient, but that is, it would be prohibitively expensive to put that over the amount of acreage uh, needed for uh, for corner soybean, uh, since most producers have you know, generally at least a thousand acres. Some are these days are farming two to four or five thousand acres over a couple of counties. Um, and the amount of water that they had to put on a year is you know, very much dependent upon how much rainfall we get and how much water is in the soil. Um, and, you know, we're fortunate in this part of the country that a lot of our precipitation does come during the growing season. Um, but, you know, there are times we just don't get enough during the growing season so that irrigation becomes kind of supplemental or essential. Um, but there was another experiment that you all, that you were a part of, I believe it was probably about, what, five or six years ago, uh, where you did some more simulations and also had some, weren't there some aircraft involved? Yeah, so uh, the Great Plains Irrigation Experiment, or GreenX is what we call it for short, um, that was a field campaign that took place in eastern Nebraska in 2018. Um, and the the principal investigator for GreenX is Rizal Mahmood at University of Nebraska-Lincoln, but it was a huge project. So there were PIs as well from Western Kentucky University, the University of Alabama, Huntsville, uh, University of Colorado Boulder, I believe, and then there was a partnership with NCAR, um, the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Um, and so this was a, a huge campaign that um, spanned the growing season from May to, I believe, the end of July um, in 2018. And they instrumented an area that was about 100 by 100 kilometers, um, kind of like centered on Lincoln. Um, so it really uh, took advantage of that gradient that you were talking about earlier with mostly rain-fed um, agriculture to the eastern side of it and, um, you know, predominantly irrigated uh, fields on the western side. Um, and our part, um, my colleague Ed Kim at NASA, he has a soil moisture instrument, um, he, two of them actually, uh, one is called Grex, which is the Goddard RF Explorer. Um, and so he had that instrument flying on a NASA twin otter plane uh, for part of the GreenX um, experiment. And they, you know, flew it around during these intensive observation periods where they had even more observations on the ground as well. Um, mm -hmm. And that instrument then takes um, observations that they can then convert to soil moisture um, spatially. So you have these kind of lines of soil moisture that can kind of connect the dots between some of these, um, you know, in situ or these observational sites that are on the ground. 
because um, um, the observational sites are great. You know, we we love having these, um, you know, in situ sites, but it's just, you know, one here, one there, one, one there. So it's nice to have this airborne perspective where you can see what's happening in between those sites as well. Yeah, so did you find that there's reasonable agreement between the airborne and the in situ uh, soil moisture? Um, so I don't think anyone has looked at that just yet. Um, we hope that there would be, but uh, it's always kind of difficult to compare those things directly because what the plane sees is slightly different than what's being measured on the ground. So usually with the these mm -hmm. soil moisture probes, it's measuring at um, you know different levels than what we're seeing from the aircraft or from satellites. Oh, sure. Yeah, and even in the Nebraska Mesonet Network, there's... Um... Some sites measured five centimeters. Some are, I think they're, it's a 10 centimeters at all sites and you know, like 25, 15, 100. So, I mean, the airborne, I'm guessing it was probably like a passive sensor that maybe ca captured like the top, maybe five centimeters of the profile. Um, but did you all find at least that was sensitive to what was maybe being irrigated or what was, what soils were, or landscape was wet versus what wasn't wet? Yeah. So, Again, I don't think anybody has looked at that data okay. specifically yet, but I would certainly expect that it would be able to see that just based on other, um, you know, observations that we've gotten from that instrument on the plane. Um, it should be able to show those, you know, that gradient and whether that magnitude, you know, matches up exactly with the, the soil moisture probes. We wouldn't expect that to be like one to one, but I I would expect it to get that um you know, that gradient, correct? Yeah, I, mean, I think one of the challenges of irrigation is you know, making sure that it's done efficiently. And one of those things, one of the ways you would do it efficiently is by using soil moisture data or other methods to make sure that, you know, you're applying water at the right times, not, you know, at the right quantity. Um, and it strikes me that, you know, having like SMAP and SMOS could be very useful uh, as part of like a overall like land service modeling framework to give you like an estimate of the root zone because uh, they, you know, can kind of help correct the top part of the layer to get to give you those percentiles. And you know, those types of information can be used. But I'm also thinking it'd be really cool if, you know, some of these passive sensors can be flown around on drones over fields to show you, oh, okay, you got this much moisture in the top part of your profile. Uh, maybe you should consider irrigating in, you know, the next 24 hours or something. Um but kind of getting back to grain X, so it was 2018, if I recall, 2018 was an unusually dry spring, and then we kind of started getting a lot of moisture in the summer, maybe probably, I know June was kind of wet. So did that sort of throw off the campaign a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that they expected it to be, you know, super dry, but it was interesting to see some rain events throughout the season and it wasn't so wet that they weren't able to to identify any irrigated signals so even with um you know the fairly frequent rain events they were still able to see um, later in the season when irrigation is really kind of like at its maximum they were able to determine that there was an irrigation effect in terms of cooler temperatures and more humidity over the irrigated sites as compared to the non-irrigated sites. So it it would have been nice if, you know, it was a slightly drier than normal year. But <laughs> I mean, you know, it's realistic that, you know, sometimes it'll be a bit more wet and it's still useful to have that information that even in a not super dry year, 
um, there is still this irrigation effect. Yeah. Do you, do you find that that localized cooling is, I mean, is it mostly just confined to the areas where irrigation is occurring? And like, in other words, it doesn't necessarily have a pr profound effect outside that area? So in our model simulations, that is the case. Um, the GrainX data is still being analyzed by all of the different groups. And there have been a few studies that have come out um, and more in the works. Uh, but some of the ones that have already been released show, I think that that effect is um, mostly over the irrigated areas, but the impact of irrigation can affect um, some existing circulations. Um, so in that respect, it can, um, you know, influence areas outside of the irrigated area, um, even if it's not as strong of a cooling or moistening. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's So I remember in 2012, and we had significant flash drought and a couple of heat waves in July, that in parts of the state where you had the highest concentration of irrigation, which I mean, like people were probably that simultaneously running your pivots in that core area, kind of like between Holdridge, Minden. So like South of Grand Island, South of Kearney, if those names aren't familiar with, you don't, don't worry about it. But like you actually legitimately saw like a lot fewer days over 100 in that kind of that part of central Nebraska where you had your highest concentration of irrigation. When you got outside those boundaries, like there were significantly more days of 100. So it's like, I absolutely think that those, what you're capturing with the model is actually really being reflected by reality. And even if just like a little bit larger, if you think about this, like if we have a higher humidity, it tends to not get as hot. Uh, so since Lancaster, Gage County, here in Nebraska, since we converted more back to corn and soybean in the last 30 years, that ET signal is a little bit different when it was when we had sorghum. We Our frequency of temperatures over 100 degrees in Lincoln actually has kind of dropped off a little bit. The correspondent, on the flip side, though, our dew points are now higher than they probably used to be. So like we used to not, generally have dew points in the upper 70s here now they visit us at least a couple of times a summer this year we've had numerous days where they've been upper 70s low 80s most recent heat wave we just had in, in august or not this one over labor day week but the one we had that um week of august 21st and we had temperatures upper 90s around 100 degrees and dew points around 80 we just had this massive ridge over us and all this extra evapotranspiration from corn and you know, there was a lot of irrigation west of here. So it's just like, it is, it's like there's all this extra water vapor being pumped into the atmosphere and it just yeah, wasn't going anywhere. Don't need it. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but I mean, it, it probably, it probably did help keep things a little bit cooler though, because that ridge, I mean, we, it was an historically deep ridge, like the 500 millibar height at Omaha on like August 21st is 602 decameters. And temperatures were upper 90s, low 100s in our area. Without the irrigation and out the ET from the corn, I don't know. It, may, it might have been 110, 115, like it was in central Kansas a couple of days before that. Um, so it may just be interesting, like, if somebody would do a study, like, of if you just had very desiccated crops and no extra ET, what our temperatures might have been. It, may, it might have been a lot different. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's it's interesting that you say that because this is actually, I think, something that um, you know our irrigation community has been looking at more closely in the last few years is this impact of irrigation on moist heat. 
Um, mm-hmm. So there have been some global studies, you know, uh, by Wim Thierry's group looking at um, how irrigation may have impacted the the global warming signal basically over the globe and over you know especially irrigated areas um and what they found is that uh they believe irrigation has mitigated the effect of global warming in certain areas of the globe um but you know the trade-off to that is exactly what you said that it makes it more humid um and so i think that very recently, people are now starting to say, well, wait, like, what is the net effect then of irrigation? Is this cooling, um, you know, that is a positive effect? Is that actually the dominant effect? Or is the increase in humidity, which is detrimental, you know, more of the driving factor in terms of, you know, how it affects our human bodies? Sure. No, that makes sense. I mean, I wonder if it's a situation where in general, it's a benefit, but like during pronounced heat waves, maybe it could be detrimental in terms of it adding extra humidity. But I mean, at least from the standpoint of vegetation health, having higher humidity is, well, it's better to a point. It's, it's, it's not good when you start, it's so humid that you start getting diseases. But um, yeah, I mean, it is striking me though that we are certainly altering the lower boundary layer with the amount of corn that we have in the extra water that we're, we're putting on. Um, it's like the last time we had a significant heat wave like that in late August uh, was 1983, or at least like where you get consecutive days over 100 degrees here. If you look at observations for late August, 1983, your dew points were in the sixties. So it was like, that was kind of a manageable heat. Like it's not what call it healthy, but it's probably less dangerous than say like the, heat indices being 115, 120, or 125, which is what we had around here a couple of weeks ago. And this is because of the higher dew points. Um, our last guest actually was talking about um, wet bulb global temperature. It's like humidity is a huge aspect of it. Now more people are starting to pay more attention to it because uh, it also takes account like the solar radiation and the, the lower wind speeds. Um, and, you know, again, the that um, higher humidity signal in there, though, is, is very, very important. Um, so do you, like, you, do you guys probably, do you look at the effect on groundwater in any of your studies or are you mostly just looking at what was going on in the lower boundary layer? For my studies specifically, we're really focused on the surface and boundary layer. Um, at the time we didn't have irrigation modules in the model that were connected to groundwater. Um, cause this was quite a while ago, but, um, you know, those advances have been made in the last decade to connect our irrigation schemes to groundwater. Um, and you know, the next step that happens in land models, but I don't think necessarily yet in our coupled atmosphere land models is, you know, partitioning where that water is coming from, whether it's groundwater or being drawn from, you know, lakes or reservoirs or rivers, you know, the surface water input where it's coming from. Um, and so that's, you know, really the next step in trying to connect all of those, you know, sophisticated land surface processes to the atmosphere um, so that we can have those effects in the atmosphere. Yeah, no, that's excellent because I mean, that's really, that's probably the biggest, well, I would say probably longer term is the biggest concern with irrigation is like, are we depleting too many of our resources now for the future? I'm happy to say in a lot of Nebraska that we've done, I think for the most part, we've done okay here in the state with, with our managing of groundwater resources. 
Uh, but other parts of the country may not be as lucky with their groundwater. And it's like, once you've depleted that, like your options for irrigation may be much more limited. And it'd be interesting to see what kind of feedback cycle that leads to, like in parts of Texas or Oklahoma or Kansas, where they don't have as much groundwater in 10 years, if they maybe have to completely change their, their cropping systems or something because of the you know, lack of being able to irrigate. Um, are there other parts of the country where you've applied some of your work? Yeah, so we've looked at the Pacific Northwest in central Washington. Um, there, That is a much different climate than Nebraska, uh, much drier. Um, and so we used some satellite observations and um, global historical climate network observations um, to try to map basically when irrigation kind of exploded there and whether that had an effect on um, the maximum temperatures in the summer. Um, and we did see uh, a signal there that in the decades following this rapid expansion of irrigation um, in the Columbia River Basin, there was a decrease in the maximum temperatures um, in the decades that followed it. And we kind of um, complemented that with some modeling um, with our models to, to look at the impact of irrigation in that fairly arid area. Um, and our model results did support the, observa the observational results in that we saw irrigation kind of lowered the temperature, um, not only right over those irrigated areas, but a lot of these global, global historical climate network stations are like just outside of that you know, really intensely irrigated area. And our model showed that the irrigation effect could be, you know, blown downwind, advected to these stations where we saw the cooling in the historical record. Interesting. Um, so when, when was the big uh, massive uptick in irrigation in that area then? So that was, um, I believe, around 1950. Uh, they started kind of constructing a lot of this infrastructure in the 20s and 30s. And, um, you know, the first water was delivered like late 1940s and things really took off and in these counties that had the infrastructure um, in the early 1950s. Interesting. Yeah, that would be probably right around the time, maybe slightly before you started seeing a massive increase in irrigation in parts of Nebraska as well. And I don't think a lot of people probably realize how important agriculture is to parts of Washington State, Oregon, especially Washington State. They grow a lot of different crops there, uh, including a lot of things that are staples that we need. And a lot of those things are exported um, out of the U.S. to other countries. Um, so when I think people think of the Northwest. I think they think of trees and the coast and fog and mist. And it's like, no, it's on the other side of the Cascades. It's actually a very, very different climate. And right. irrigation is probably is, is very essential to to growing crops there. And it's, it's interesting that, so in, in that area, the there might actually be a little bit more of a pronounced down, downwind signal of cooling than there was, say, like in the Central Plains or Western Corn Belt. Yeah, I think it's probably able to be discerned more easily too, because the, the differences between the irrigated and non-irrigated areas are so different there. Um, and that is partially well, in large part because of the climate, you know, you were saying in, in Nebraska, a lot of the irrigation is supplemental, especially in the east. Well, there for, you know, growing crops in these vineyards and, and these fruit trees, they really require irrigation. And so the crops that you would 
grow in the dry land area, you know, the rain fed area, um, those are going to be quite different than what's being irrigated. And you can see that on a satellite image. If you pull up Google Maps um, and, you know, zoom in on satellite mode to the Pacific Northwest, you can see very clearly, um, you know, what is irrigated. And so the crops that are being grown there, they're probably, you know, transpiring differently. They're they're giving off more of that water than what's being grown in the dryland area. Sure. Well, if that happens, you know, if the lower boundary layer, there's naturally a little bit less waste than it is, say, in eastern Nebraska. It's like it would make sense that probably would help cool a little bit more. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is something I like clarify. When I say irrigation, Nebraska, eastern Nebraska supplemental, I mean, that's most years. This year is an exception. It was tr truly essential. Uh, but I mean, a lot of farmers would justify that irrigation because, like, they do get, you know, probably at least. 20%, a lot of years they probably get 10, 20% yield increase than they would get on rain fed. Spread that over thousands of acres, you know, it's a lot more money. Like, granted, there is the input cost of irrigation, but I mean, in general, I think that, you know, they will put on that extra six to nine inches of water a year to make sure that they get really, really high yields. Um, it, you know, means it helps them sustain their, uh, live, you know, their livelihood. And um, yeah, it's a very interesting stuff. So where could we find some of your work? So I have a NASA profile page. If you just Google my name, it should come up and that will have a list of all of my publications and links to each of them. Um, that page I think also includes links to a couple of seminars that I've done recently that are posted on YouTube. Um, so there's one from, I think last August at the University of Albany that was um, more directed at the general public. So that might be a good one to check out. Whereas. The other one that's linked, I believe, is the the University of Maryland, which is a bit more technical. So depending on what you're interested in, you can find more information there. Okay. Thank you very much. And I think that about wraps up this. So thank you very much for joining us, Tricia, and you have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having